Father, we are again grateful um, to be here. We're grateful for just your word. Um, thank you, Lord, just for your gospel. I just ask now that you will soften our hearts to the beauty of, of this, this passage, Lord. I ask that you humble me now just as your servant as I preach this word before you and before your people. May we walk away a changed person. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, in spite of what I just told you um, about this passage, you know, it's, it's always a joy when studying the Word of God in, in general. Um, I am thankful that uh, I get to do that. It's a privilege to study the Word of God. Um, but there's something powerful in, in studying the life of Jesus. Um, there's something about this man's life that drives home the gospel every time I come across his life in, in my reading, in my studying, and, and now really preaching a gospel message. Um, I've, I've never preached on the gospel here at Gateway, but I've studied the gospel thoroughly um, in Bible college and now in seminary and also in personal and church settings. Uh, let me tell you a little story here. Back at, at Masters, um, I had a professor. His name was Dr. Halstead. I know Ed's not here, um, but Ed could relate. Uh, Dr. Halstead was uh, my New Testament professor. And so I, I took his New Testament survey class. And, and Dr. Halstead, he, he's known for these, his assignments. He has two big homework assignments for the semester. He asked us to outline um, two books. And the, and the assignment he assigned uh, to me was uh, the book of Acts and the book of John. And so uh, the goal uh, is to outline the whole book of John. Uh, and it's not an outline what we all think about an outline. It's not Roman numeral uh, one, uh, point A, right? He wants summaries. And he wants pages of summaries um, for every section of the book of John. He wanted, every, uh, he wanted summaries for every section of the book of John. And so um, his warning to the class was to not wait till the last minute and to work on it every single day because um, you're not going to have time to, to finish your assignment based on what he wanted. And so um, like every good student, uh, I waited until the last week to complete this assignment. Um, a couple things I've learned since then uh, to not ever do that again. Um, <clears throat> second, if you ever read the gospel cover to cover in one setting, it is probably one of the most amazing experiences you will ever, ever see and could imagine. Um, and the reason being is because Jesus' life uh, pops out at you. And not only reading it, but studying it and laboring over the text, trying to write out what Jesus is doing. I mean, a academically, I, I, uh, I, I was tired, but, but spiritually, I, I was just being renewed as I was reading through the book of John. I was, re I was reading through the Gospels. Um, I mean, waves of emotion sort of came over me at times as I was reading the Gospel. And um, I saw that Jesus had compassion for the people. I saw that at times he, he was annoyed at the, at the disciples. 
At times he was angry at the Pharisees. And just reading through this story, something struck me. And I, I remember this moment so vividly. You know, I was on the kitchen table and I was just writing, plugging away, hour after hour, trying to write on uh, summaries on the gospel. And my wife w- was on the couch and as I was writing, um, you could ask my wife, I, I'm, I'm, I don't cry much at all, really. Um, she's probably only seen me cry once or twice. Um, and I just remember writing about Jesus and I just started to cry. And I was like, why am I crying? And, and, I, and my wife looks at me and she, with this puzzled look and she's like, why are you crying? And it was just the funniest thing. I just started laughing and I just started sobbing and I just said, man, you don't understand. I mean, this man's life is so, is so amazing. I mean, the way I get to study it, um, it, was, it was something I've never kind of experienced. And I'm saying this because um, what struck me the most at that very moment was the frustration of some of the people around Jesus, specifically the Pharisees. And here's the reason why. It's because they did not get it. They never got it. I mean, Jesus was perfect in every way. He showed compassion and wisdom. He obeyed God all the way to the cross. Yet there were people who betrayed him, who denied him, who hated him, to say the least. And I think that's, that's what drove me crazy. That's what drove me to tears. Is because how can you have the Son of God right in front of your face, and deny him. And really, that, that's a reflection on, on me. I mean, when you read the Bible, really, it's, a, it's, it's almost a mirror. And you see yourself at times. Well, today, we, we find the same people in our passage this morning. We see Mark paint this picture of four different types of crowds or people that, that, that view Jesus in a variety of ways. I mean, anytime someone studies the life of Jesus or, or is, hears the life of Jesus or reads the Gospels, you really come up with two responses. You either reject him as king, maybe flat out hate him, or you bow down and worship him as Lord and Savior. So my question for you this morning is, how do you view Jesus? How do you view Jesus? And that takes me to the aim of this passage. My aim is how we view Jesus reveals how we, will, how we will respond to Jesus. How we view Jesus reveals how we will respond to Jesus. Now, usually, if we're going through a book of Mark, it, I mean, we'll, I'll do my best to, to give you some, some context. And again, um, we're not. We're going through Second Samuel, but I'll, I'll take a little bit of time here to kind of see what's going on in the context of chapter three. Um, now, if if we look back just a little bit, uh, it gives us a sense of, of what's going on. Uh, the end of chapter two, leading into chapter three, we find Jesus claiming that he is Lord of the Sabbath, right? Uh, and the Pharisees are not happy. Uh, in chapter three, it begins with Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. And it's somewhat the final straw for the Pharisees. I mean, they just lose it. 
Um, and, and from here, it, it shows the hardness in their hearts. Um, and it shows in, in verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me in chapter 3. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. And so um, the Pharisees uh, were wanting to, to team up with the very people they opposed, the Herodians. They were a political group, right? And the Pharisees were a religious group. And so um, the ideal here is shocking. I mean, Mark, uh, the author, is, is really giving us this picture of two opposite sides of the spectrum wanting to come together in order to kill Jesus. And so we find a, really a, a political and a religious motivation to kill Jesus. I mean, hatred from his enemies grew so much that over the next year or so, they would conspire and eventually kill him on that cross. But Jesus, being the wisest, wisest of all men on the earth, um, knew that his time would eventually come, um, but this time wouldn't be now. His time wouldn't be now. So we find, as we head into verse 7, um, that we see Jesus withdraw from the re religious leaders, which takes us to our text this morning. Um, what I like to call, really, is the beginning of our passage is, is the fans of Jesus. The fans of Jesus. The first thing we see in our first scene is Jesus' followers, right? Um, and we see the extent of his popularity, the extent of his popularity. And it's important to note that even when he was trying to retreat from the religious leaders, the crowd followed him. And so I believe the beginning of chapter 3, verse 7, helps us understand that Jesus had reached the height of his popularity. Now, keep in mind that the, the Bible likes to understate numbers. And so we're not just thinking of a small crowd here, but it's a massive crowd. I mean, some estimated that it's about tens of thousands of people. I mean, look, turn to me chapter 1 in, in, uh, in Mark. I mean, from the moment his ministry started in chapter, chapter 1, it, it spread like wildfire. Look at verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, and his ultimate job was proclaiming the gospel of God. And in verse 21, they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. So, right? I mean, Mark is quick. I mean, he was an apostle of, uh, or he was a disciple of Peter, and you understand this, just going to the book of Mark, um, how fast the scenes move, right? Um, that's why if you ever just kind of read the first two chapters, it's like immediately, 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 right? It seems like just, you know, Peter, shoot from the hip, is just kind of mouthing off to Mark, and Mark's just writing it down, all right? And that you get that sense as you read through the book of Mark, right? And so Mark moves to verse 28, chapter 1, says, And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And so this morning, uh, just so we could kind of get a visual of what's going on, I, I have a map here. Hopefully you can see it. I know it's a little dark and a little blurry and a little small. Uh, so I'll do my best. So um, right here, that, this is where the, the Sea of Galilee is, or was, I believe. And then up here, you have Tyre and you have Sidon, right? That's the north. Down here, you have uh, Edomia and Judea. 
down here in the south, or southeast as they would call it. So um, if you can imagine just the crowds, they're coming from down south, from up north, right? And they're heading towards this way to the Sea of Galilee, uh, or to Galilee where Jesus is at. And so uh, the idea here is that the, this group of people encompasses Jews and Gentiles. And so uh, they are witnessing the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Again, his fame was widespread. It's pretty remarkable when you think about it. And because of the enormous crowd, we find that Jesus is telling his disciples to have the boat ready. Right? In other words, he's saying, keep the car running. Um, there's a chance I may get trampled here. I mean, Jesus was making sense of the situation, and he wanted to protect himself from harm. And so the question, of course, is, is why? I mean, wh- why were people coming in droves? Why, why were people coming to see Jesus Christ? Right? I mean, the extent of his popularity was north, south. They were coming from everywhere. And we find the answer in, in my next point, which is the extent of, of Jesus' power. The extent of Jesus' power. And the extent of his power is what caused so many to come to Jesus for healing. Right? Those with diseases, those who are crippled, those who are lame. And so, just pause for a moment and just, and just think about this scene. Tens of thousands of people crowding around Jesus. People who are hurt, who are distraught, who are crippled, all coming to him. And so, what we find here really is, is, is broken creation. The people running to him for aid. Right? I mean, just the polar opposite of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were seeking to destroy Jesus. And the people, the crowd, they were coming to him for help. Jesus has the power to heal. The power to give and take away. Third, what we find in our scene the first scene is the extent of Jesus' humility. The extent of Jesus' humility. Jesus' power was so clear that demons recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. Look at that. I mean, the demons' theology was correct. And it's interesting also to note that this is the first account in Mark where we find a, a confession of Jesus' sonship. And also Mark... He lays it out perfectly. I mean, the, gen- the Gentile audience in the mix, Mark records that the demons were saying that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, the Son of God. Now, uh, the, the demons, they weren't, they weren't praising Jesus, right? Um, they, they were naming Jesus as the Son of God because uh, what they were thinking at this time is that naming Jesus um, as the Son of God will give them power over Jesus, Okay, so naming in the Old Testament is an interesting concept. Um, naming, uh, we all know that God named light day, and he named darkness, uh, he called it night. Um, God ordered Adam to name all livestock and all animals as a sign of dominion over creation. Okay, and so what the demons, what we find here is the demons are trying to have that same power, to have dominion over Jesus. That's why uh, they were trying to name him. They were naming him Son of God. But Jesus wasn't having any of that, so Jesus silenced them. 
That's what it says. I mean, it was both from the wrong source at the wrong time. Jesus would fulfill his mission on his own terms and on his own authority. I mean, Jesus knew that he must die in order to complete the work as a son of God. His time had not, his time had not yet come. Popular, powerful, yet humble Jesus we see here in our text. While the demons tried to exercise power in naming Jesus, what we find in the next scene is Jesus exercising his authority in naming his followers, which I call the followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus. As the crowds grew big, bigger, we find that Jesus retreats to the mountain. And here we, we find Jesus using his sovereign authority in calling his disciples. Right? This is not a normal calling but a calling from the great Messiah himself. It was a calling to be a part of whom he was, to be a part of the greatest ministry on earth. And so the first, uh, again, the first thing we find in this particular scene, the followers of Jesus, first we, f- we find the call to minister, the call to minister, uh, to appoint, that word you see, appoint in, um, in verse 14, literally, literally is to make or, or to create. Right, so Jesus was creating. It's the same word in the Septuagint, the, the, the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God what? Created. It's that same word. Jesus was creating his disciples. So Jesus not only assigned a task to minister, he created the twelve who would eventually change the world upside down with his gospel. Friends, there is no greater appointment than to be called by Jesus and to proclaim his name. And then that word apostles literally is is sent ones. They were called to preach and to cast out demons. That was their job. Right? This is is through Jesus' ragtag group of men where, where the barrier of culture, language, from generation to generation would be broken by the proclamation of the gospel. That barrier would be broken through these um, group of disciples. That's why we have so many churches established. That's why this church is here today. I mean, it's the same reason why we are bringing the word, specifically how to teach the word, to other parts of the world. I mean, how marvelous it, it is that a small church, just like us, brings word ministry to those, to those in need. So your prayers and your support goes a long way in making his name known. And friends, that's the goal, is to make his name known through the preaching of the word. Again, this is, there's always just this, this contrast that Mark brings. And if you remember, the demons were calling out, right, calling Jesus, calling him the son of God. I mean, they wanted to have, again, they wanted to have authority over Jesus, um, but that does not work. Because when, when hell collides with heaven, darkness is silenced. When Jesus exercises his authority in naming his disciples, heaven rejoices. The call of the disciples to minister to the ends of the earth is a call to all people to repent and believe in God. That was Jesus' mission. That was his ministry. Next in our scene is we not only find Jesus' call to minister, but we also find his call to submit. His call to submit. 
Here's what I mean. I mean, Mark, just like other gospel writers, <clears throat> perfectly places various accounts in the text. And the, and the Bible is, is brutally honest at times, if you think about it. Um, Mark shows the integrity in his reporting um, by including the whole list of disciples. Okay, so look at this list. In almost every list of the disciples, Judas is usually listed as last, and what's also listed is his betrayal. And sometimes I have to ask myself, is why, why is this even included? Why include Judas? Why, why give him a name right, in, 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 in the Word of God? And what, what I'm thinking about here is that, is that Mark was really trying to relay this message of, of Jesus submitting himself. He was submitting himself to, to what he knows what his final ending would be. He knows that Judas is going to betray him. And so, Jude, uh, so Jesus was submitting himself to be betrayed, to be beaten, to be mocked, and eventually killed. And it's all started with the darkness in the heart of Judas. The Savior knew Judas would betray him out of darkness. And we have the Son of God submitting to his own death. What a wonderful king we have, that there is blood all over Judas's hands from the very beginning, yet Jesus obeys. What a wonderful Savior. Now, I, want, I wanted to touch on, on verses 20 to 21 very briefly. I'm going to touch on them at the end. <clears throat> it says, Then he went home, and the crowds gathered so that they could not even eat. Verse 21, And when his family, family heard it, they went out to seize him, and they were saying he was out of his mind. So, after appointing his disciples, we find that Jesus returns home, and we find the crowd again. And, and we all know that home is, is usually a, a place of comfort, right? But it was so overly populated that they could not even eat, as the text says. And after spending time with his beloved, with his beloved disciples, naming them, all right, Jesus, his own family, his blood, had the audacity to call him crazy. After all the things Jesus was doing, they were saying, look, he's out of his mind. What's going on here? And I guess from, from, from the perspective of, of Jesus' family, we have to try and understand why, why, they, that, why they were calling him crazy. Okay? Um, again, Jesus had thousands of followers, tens of thousands of followers, right? the crowd. He was, in his family's eyes, what was he doing? He was causing the religious leaders of the day to conspire to kill him. Okay, by any means necessary. And so his family did not want to be shamed. Right? You're causing all this ruckus, Jesus. People want to kill you. What are you doing? And so you could just see it in this passage. The, the pressure is getting heavier. Right? The crowds, the physical toll, the fa his family trying to restrain him, even calling him a lunatic. You may be experiencing pressure this morning, but let me remind you, our Savior experienced pressure, more pressure than we could ever imagine. And it only gets worse. Third in our text, in the, our third scene, we find Jesus' enemies. 
or like to call the foes of Jesus. So we looked at the fans of Jesus. We looked at the following, his followers. Now we find in the third scene, the foes of Jesus. The foes of Jesus. <clears throat> so the point we find in this text is really a response from the scribes, from the, from the religious leaders. The first thing, of course, we find is, is a response from the scribes. So in the beginning of chapter 3, we find that Jesus saw the hardness of, of, of the hearts of the religious leaders, right? And look at, look at chapter 3, verse 5. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at the hardness of heart. Look, Jesus is preaching the gospel. He's healing the lame and sick. He's casting out demons. He's submitting to his eventual death. And the scribes come to this verdict in seeing who Jesus is. And this is their conclusion. So the scribes see all this. And this is the conclusion of the scribes. He's the prince of demons. It's like, what? It's one of those things where you always just shake your head as you're reading through the Gospels. It's like Jesus is doing all this work and your verdict is he's the prince of demons. He's Beelzebul. What a sad, sad picture. The scribes are claiming that Jesus is possessed. He's controlled by Satan, the ruler of the demon world. Right? And Again, just a couple of verses ago, what was happening? The demons called who? Jesus what? The Son of God. Friends, this is how a hardened heart looks like. They look at the perfect one, Jesus Christ, yet they call him evil. And so the most powerful statement Jesus could make with his, is with his words. And here's his response. A response to defeating Satan. A response to defeating Satan. Here's what Jesus does. He, Jesus turns their logic upside down. <clears throat> he says, why would Satan act against himself? Right? I mean, if Satan were, were fighting Satan, he will not stand. And you have to think about this. Satan wants chaos among the kingdom, among his kingdom. He, I mean, he wants, he wants to enslave humans to sin. And so Jesus, can, he brings it home, so to speak, in verse 25. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. He was saying, if there is division in the home or within a family, failure is always the result. Usually, right? If there is division in the home, it usually results in, in, in failure. If there is division in the ranks of Satan's army, it will not stand. And so Jesus is asking, well, why, would, why would Satan do this? Right? That, that's his logic. That's, that's his wisdom. And then he goes on to further explain in this parable. Verse 27, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. So, the question is, who, who is a strong man? The strong man here is Satan. The darkness in this world is his house. His house is filled with sin, death, demons, evil, and wickedness. And there's only one man 
that could bind a strong man. Do we get that? There's only one man that could bind a strong man. Let's, let's take a, a quick detour here to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And some of us already know this, where I'm going, right? It's the beginning of, of the gospel, the gospel story. Let me read it for you. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 15. And the woman said, the, ser- the, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's chapter 13. And then here, here's God speaking, chapter 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Right? So Satan's cursed in this world. He's the prince of darkness. And in verse 15, right? Here's the beginning of the gospel in Genesis. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And so the bruiser of the head is, is Christ and the bruiser of the heel is Satan. Key point, Jesus will, 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 con- will conquer Satan. He will kill the strong man. Jesus will plunder his house. Turn back with me to, to Mark chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. You see, it already happened in chapter 1. Jesus entered the strong man's world. And he resisted everything that was thrown at him. Friends, you look at this text, and you realize that Jesus is the stronger man. Jesus is is the stronger man. And so the religious leaders who he's talking to, they knew the Old Testament, right? I mean, that was their life, is to know the Old Testament. Yet they could not put two and two together. They were blind. Which I believe in this, con- in this context is a rejection of the Holy Spirit. And this is how Jesus responds to those who blasphemes the, who blasphemes the Holy Spirit. It's a response to rejecting the Spirit. It resp- what we find here is a response to rejecting the Spirit. A couple things to take note is Jesus begins his statement here, his heavy, weighty statement with truly, meaning I assure you, or, or amen. Right? We usually see this at the end for prayer. But really, Jesus is, is, is affirming what he's about to say is true and reliable. He's saying, look, pay attention here. What I'm about to say is weighty. First, he declares that literally all sins and blasphemies can be forgiven because of the gracious forgiveness and mercy of God. All sinners can find the forgiveness of God if they come to him in faith and repentance. However, this is why context is so important, and this is why we teach context, is because this passage or theological reference is probably one, just one, of the most abused and misunderstood passages if we fail to understand the context of this passage. 
First, here's the thing. In looking at this passage, we learn that Jesus is talking to the scribes, right? Jesus is talking to the scribes. Second, the scribes were, expre- were expressing uh, defiant hostility toward Jesus in spite of all the evidence in the world that he is the Son of God. So if you look at verse 22 and verse 30 in chapter 3, look at the words they were, they were saying. You guys see that there? Verse 22 and verse 33, it says they, they were saying. So that, 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 that's a verb in the imperfect tense. Here's, here's what it's saying. Here's what Mark's doing. He's saying they were continually saying. They were continually saying. They were, con- they were consistently hurling um, these slurs at Jesus that he has an unclean spirit. Right? It wasn't just one time. They were, they were continually doing it. So the warning is, if they were to continue down this road, listen, listen church, if they were to continue down this road, they will never be forgiven by God. Some have trouble pinpointing what, what blasphemy is. Um, I know I've met some people that, that think blasphemy could involve murder or adultery. Well, <clears throat> if you haven't been attending Gateway the past two years, we have Exhibit A with David's life. Um, he was a man after God's own heart, yet he committed sin. He committed murder. He committed adultery. So I, I tried to come to, you know, uh, to a conclusion of, and define what blasphemy is. And so you guys could get this from me after. I don't, I don't have it up here. I'm sorry. But um, blasphemy is a sin that knowingly insults, mocks, and dishonors God. Blasphemy is a sin that knowingly insults, mocks, and dishonors God. And I would add continually. It's a total opposite of praise. This is John Piper's definition. The unforgivable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an act of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convicting power so that we are never able to repent and be forgiven. I like what Sproul says on this subject. R.C. Sproul says this, Humanly speaking, if one is worried they have committed the unpardonable sin, I would say that worrying about it, listen, worrying about it is one of the clearest evidences that they have not committed this sin. For those who commit it are so hardened in their hearts, they do not care that they commit it. So, to take away from, from this scene, let this be a warning for all of us that walking away, walking out of our doors and not having any heart warmth or, or, just, or, or mind in, in, in thinking about God and just is a flat-out rejection. And that rejection would, would lead to a hardening of your hearts if you continually reject God. But also let this be an encouragement that Jesus is willing and able to forgive all our most grievous sins because if you remember on the cross, what does he say? He says, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. 
And who was there at the cross? The religious leaders. Precious Jesus on the cross said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. They have these hardened hearts. But Father, forgive them. That is our Savior. We've seen the fans of Jesus, the followers of Jesus, and the foes of Jesus. Lastly, in our text this morning, we have the family of Jesus, if you guessed it right. The family of Jesus. Now, if you look at this passage, specifically verse 32, who's with Jesus once again? The crowd. So we, we began with the crowd, right? They were there, and we end with the crowd. So just thinking through this, we're, we're maybe seeing that the crowd was somewhat there, or, and so they're observing all this, right? And so his mothers and brothers are calling to him, and, and interestingly, it's the crowds that let Jesus know that they were trying to find him. And I want, I want to note here that in, in Hebrew culture, and I, I think many of us can relate to us depending on our culture, but, but family was sacred, okay? Family was everything in Hebrew culture. I mean, you are identified by your family, really. There is an ob- obligation to, to family in all aspects of life, socially, economically, culturally. So there is a weight in Jesus' response. There, there is a weight in Jesus' response. And what I like to call it is, is a warning. It's a warning from Jesus. Verse 33, And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? You have to understand that, that statement. Who are my mother and my brothers? In front of the crowd, in front of his disciples, he say, Who are my mother and brothers? He's looking around him. Right? Just, just picture the scene. He, he's looking around him. He, he, he does not see his own family. And the idea was like he was, he was searching. He had a searching look. And in Matthew, Matthew's account of the same scene, it says that Jesus was stretching out his hand toward his disciples. And if you remember, just to go through it again, Jesus' family Remember in verses 20 and 21, they thought he was crazy. They were trying to restrain him. Right? Je- Jesus experienced the, the rejection. The, re- the religious leaders labeled him as a demon. People were coming to him not as a brother, but as a healer. And so we find in this question really a, a warning that Jesus' family go- goes far more deeper than blood. Let me be clear here. Jesus was not cutting, off, cutting ties to his family, okay? Let me make that clear. He wasn't cutting off ties to his family. Uh, we know in John 19 that Jesus acknowledged his mother on the cross. We know that his beloved brother James would be martyred for the sake of the gospel. In fact, in Mark 7, we find that Jesus put strong emphasis on parenthood. So this is not a calling to break family ties. But listen, listen, church. I want you to know that following Christ will cause division for some of us. Following Christ will cause division for some of us, even in our own families. 
A family really is a gift to all of us, but it should never become our idol. A family is a gift to all of us, and it should never become our idol. And so here's the, here's the reason why Jesus said what he said. Jesus makes another bold statement in answering his own question. And it's a sweeping statement in this passage, and I also find it as a promise. I find it as a promise. This blanket statement, right? Verse 34, And looking about as those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my, my brother and sister and mother. What is he saying here? Anyone who does the will of God is part of God's family. Anyone who does the will of God is part of God's family. Jesus is saying that there is something more, far more satisfying, far more demanding and more dear than my immediate family. And they're right here in front of me. Our Christian relationship is characterized by our submission to God's will. In other words, obedience to the will of God portrays a fundamental relationship between Christians. Oh, let, me, let me also just make this statement. Obedi- obedience does not automatically put you in the family of God, but obedience is a sign that you are part of God's family. Let me say that again. Obedience does not automatically put you in the family of God, but obedience is a sign that you are part of God's family. So doing the will of God is experiencing family with God. And the question remains, what is the will of God? What is the will of God? First, let's look at Jesus. In Luke 8.21, it says, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. That's Luke 8.21. We know that Jesus lived the perfect will of the Father. In the garden when he prayed, as blood was running down his face, he cried out to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me. Yet he says, yet not not what I will, but what you will. One commentary put it, every beat of Christ's heart was given to performing his Father's will. So the greatest example we have is Christ submitting to God's will. He submitted his entire life to the point of death in doing the will of God. Second, what is God's will for us? What is God's will for us and how does it align with Jesus? Let me read to you Romans 12, 1 and 2. We know this too well. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, is good, acceptable, and let me be clear that this is not the sovereign will of God on what he plans to do in this text in Romans 12. But this is, this is God's revealed will on what we are called to do as Christians. Right? We are called by the mercies of God, by his saving grace. We are called to commit and submit our lives as a living sacrifice to God while at the same time worshiping him We are to be influenced by the word of God so that we are renewed by doing the will of God. And the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. So, in short, hear the word and do it. That's what Jesus says. Hear the word and do it. And that's the will of God. 
I mean, have, have you ever sensed that being around Christians, there's, there's always a greater unity with each other? Right? There's something unique when you look around the room on a Sunday morning and you find people of different ages, people of different backgrounds, different races, and we're all worshiping God, submitting to the Father's will under the authority of the preached word. What a beautiful sight to see. Hear the word this morning, friends, and do it. That's what unites us. That's why we are family. Let me conclude here with a couple questions. How do you view Jesus this morning? Is your heart hardened toward him? Do you only see him as a great healer or a wise teacher? Do you look at Jesus as only a model and not a savior? Or do you see him as a compassionate king who sees our brokenness? Do you see him as a submissive shepherd and ultimate disciple maker? Do you see Jesus as the stronger man who defeated Satan on the cross? Do you see Jesus as, a great, as the greatest friend, brother, and Savior? If you are a follower of Christ, then let me submit to you that you are part of a greater family. You are part of a family that would never abandon you. You are part of a family that will never reject you. You are part of a family that will never rebel against you. You are part of a family that will never cut you off. As I said in the beginning of this sermon, you could either reject him as king, maybe flat out deny him and hate him, or you could bow down and worship him as Lord and Savior. How you view Jesus right now reveals how you respond to him in your darkest hour. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, it is so amazing to go through your life, your son's life, through Jesus Christ. And, and we, we hear it so often, just the gospel, gospel, gospel. But Father, it is the gospel that really drives our life. It is the gospel that softens our heart where we could see you it is a gospel that brings us together as a family. So whether we are near or far, we understand that we are always a family under God doing your will. Father, let this text just be our, our driving force as we go about our week, thinking about you, thinking about the cross, thinking about our family. We know that you will never abandon us. And we take great comfort in that because that's what Jesus died for. Lord, we love you and we praise you. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.